0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Discussions and Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Jaren, and I'm Britton, and this week we are featuring a friend of the podcast as well as a fellow dungeon master and player, Lane, as we discuss our homebrew rules. So, Lane, welcome to the show, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, bit about yourself, your background and experience in playing and uh, being a DM.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on Discussions and Dragons. I'm really excited to be here. A little bit about me, I have about 14 years of Dungeons and Dragons experience under my belt. I started playing when I was 12 with 2nd Edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and then I didn't start DMing, though, until about 2014, and... Uh, that's when I, like, going through 5e, I was like, man, there's a lot of things here that seem counterintuitive, and I'm glad you brought me on the homebrew episode. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you on. Uh,
0: I, I would definitely agree. There are some things in 5e that just, it, it seems like it sometimes needs a bit of work uh, in order to make it the game that you ultimately want to play. Um, so today we're going to talk about some of those homebrew rules, ones that we've used, and... Um, ones that we would like to try out at some point. So, um, Britton, why don't you get us started off with uh, one of your homebrew rules?
2: Yeah, so we've divided up these rules into generally about three different sections. We've got combat, RP, and utility. I think each of us have maybe a couple that we've worked with in campaigns. I know that we had a little bit of a discussion beforehand, Um, so I'll just... I'll do our blanket one that I think all three of us use, um, and that is our homebrew rule for natural 20s or critical hits when in combat. So typically the rule states that when you critically hit, you double the damage dice. So say your long sword does a, or sorry, your short sword does a 1d6 damage when you roll, you would roll 2d6 instead. Now, I generally don't like it when I roll my 2d6 and I get two ones. So now my critical hit is now doing two damage plus my damage modifier, which is not fun and it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of the critical hit. So I was actually introduced this uh, by my other DM, Jamel, who was in a previous episode. Um, We have this homebrewed rule now for natural 20s, where when you, instead of rolling two of the damage dice, you take a full damage dice and then you roll. So my short sword doing 1d6, I take the full six damage first, and then I roll my 1d6, and then I add my damage modifier. And I think Jaren and Lane, both of you guys, use this rule as well, right?
1: Yeah. uh, I'm going to jump in real quick. We're playing a game where we are heroes. And if you're a hero, you want to be able to hit heroically. If you get a critical hit, you don't want to hit for four damage total. You want to hit for... I don't know, the short sword example would be roll a 6, roll a 4, and then you get your bonuses on top of it, and you're doing 10 damage with a short sword at minimum. And that's a heroic hit. That's how a hero should feel.
2: Exactly. Your minimum damage should, at least on a critical hit, feel, like, worthwhile.
0: Yeah, and like you said, it doesn't feel very heroic to roll a crit and only deal a couple of damage when your previous hits were dealing, you know, 4 and 5 damage.
2: Yeah, you... You kind of feel like a weenie. Just a little bit.
1: I guess I can also take back the word hero. Like you could be doing a campaign of villains, and even then you want a crit to still feel like a crit, so you can feel more nefarious, right? Like you don't need to have this feeling of inadequacy at the table. You get to you go to the table to escape your normal life. I'm not saying you're inadequate you're right. but
2: Yeah, whether you're <laughs> whether you're saving orphans or creating them. You want to make sure <laughs> right? that your critical hits are doing what they should do.
0: That is something that I definitely don't do in my real life is creating orphans
2: uh right we we saved that for the fantasy fantasy world
0: mm. <laughs> all right, maybe we should uh move on to the next one from there
2: <laughs> yeah for legal reasons that was a joke
1: <laughs> for legal reasons none of us make orphans uh I have a combat one I'd like to incorporate on here uh bonus action potions. Uh, and I also kind of want to hear your thoughts, but I want to explain why I say potions should be a bonus action. Uh, in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, action economy is very important. And if you have to remove a step to uh, take a potion, it feels like combat is slowing down. And combat in 5th Edition also is very tedious and long, I feel. Especially when parties mm-hmm. get up to from, like, 4 players, 5 players, 6 players. I think what, in our campaign, we have a six player party with one DM and Oof. the DM is running a lot of different things. Combat gets to be long, it gets to take about maybe an hour and a half to two hours. If it's a yeah. short yeah, if it's per a, encounter if it's a short one. I
0: remember one encounter we had early on in that game, um, that literally spanned like one and a half sessions, like the entire encounter. It was a long one.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine how long it would be if anyone who wanted to take a potion had to use their action? and forfeit their action economy to just take a potion.
2: Yeah, you know, that's always bothered me because I, again, I know that the game is trying to be balanced. This will be something we'll probably talk about in next week's episode about game balance and things like that. That's kind of my beef. I know that healing is a little hard to balance in any sort of game setting. However, I I, I would 100% agree with you in the fact that, all right, well, I could either swing my sword or take a potion when the enemy in front of me could just negate all of the healing that I just did on myself from taking said potion instead of swinging my sword. And it, yeah, it, it feels kind of silly um, to do, to make, to, like, why would you make that decision?
1: It feels like the early Pokemon games, uh, when you have to take a, a whole turn to take a potion and then you get attacked again. But like in the new Pokemon Mm -hmm. games, like if you have your Pokemon hold a berry or something, the Pokemon automatically consumes that berry before you take your next turn.
2: I think that would be kind of cool as sort of maybe a feat that could be created or something where it's just completely a free action, just a reaction to damage. Or maybe it takes your reaction. As soon as you take damage, maybe the, the vial breaks and this healing tincture is you know absorbed or something like that i think that would be a really cool way to incorporate maybe a new rule regarding potion taking
0: yeah i can i can definitely see the value in that um that kind of reminds me i don't remember the name of the cantrip but there are some cantrips that uh similarly it takes a full action and only the the thing that you get to do is gain resistance to a certain type of damage for that round i think is what it is and um, it's, it goes right back to the idea of action economy being extremely valuable in combat. If you're giving up your entire action to not attack, that's a big deal.
2: Yeah. I think the, the way that our campaign does it on Sundays uh, with the Chicago group is it is a bonus action to take a potion yourself, but it is an action if you are like feeding a potion to a downed ally. So... Because you're either stowing your sword or trying to hold on to this potion and pour it into their mouth carefully, versus just chugging a potion okay. real quick yourself. Yeah,
0: I actually really like that idea.
2: Um, what about what about you, Lane? Do you is it just a, a all around a bonus action for everything?
1: Um, I have typically ruled that it's all around bonus action, but thinking about it, that does make sense. You have to feed this potion. Carefully, like you're not gonna just dump it down their throat, like shove it in their gullet and hope they get up. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna uncork it. You're gonna drop your sword or bow, um, and and feed it to them, and possibly prop their body up to let a liquid go down. You don't want to drown them. I'm just gonna splash a potion in their face. You're good.
2: Yeah, get up. You're fine. Shake it off.
1: And then coming from the DM side, though, the DM's job is to make the game fun, and if you're taking away the action economy to hold a character pour a drink down them and then drop the character again then you have to take an action i guess to grab your sword because interacting with an object is an action as well in fifth edition so yeah if i just leave God. it as a bonus Wait. action that takes into account as like putting the sword down and grabbing the sword again i guess
2: uh, and uh, that's probably the thing i'm going to write down for next episode too is interacting with objects being as like stowing a sword and pulling out a bow like every single game that we've ever played your character just swaps weapons really quickly like we're in a fantasy world let's just let's just let it be fantasy and right right we'll swap weapons real quick but moving on um jaren what is your next or what, what is your first combat uh homebrew rule that you've come across or that you use
0: well one thing that i like to try out um is this idea of uh spells or um, like, range attacks that kind of thread the needle. And I know we discussed before uh, the episode started that there are certain features that allow you to kind of bypass this, as I think they should. I think that would be beneficial. Um, but things like, uh, you know, your Elder's Blast or any sort of ranged attack that requires line of sight to hit. And if you're looking at the battlefield from the top-down view, you're looking at a grid, and you go, well, if I position my character specifically right here... And if I'm thinking about the three-dimensional plane, if I kneel down, I can kind of get this line of sight over the shoulder, between the legs, between these rocks, and technically I have line of sight because I can draw a straight line and see the thing, then I should be able to attack freely. Um, I think in that situation, and maybe this already exists, but there should be some sort of um, penalty. that I think that thing that you're trying to hit should have some sort of partial cover, right? You're trying to... Uh, bypass, you're trying to thread the needle through some allies with your Eldritch Blast or with an arrow to try to hit this thing. You're looking through it through a tiny window. There should be some sort of partial cover. And I think if you miss, maybe you accidentally hit an ally with your Eldritch Blast because, well, you're trying to snake your your spell through this little tiny hole of of line of sight, you know? And we talked beforehand that there are certain features. Spell Sniper, I think you were talking about, that allows you to um, sort of Ignore uh, cover like that, which yeah, I, I think it should.
1: I brought up that spell, uh, spell sniper and sharpshooter for bow and arrow, crossbow, uh, martial range weapons. It lets you then avoid that three quarters cover. And then, unless you do those trick shots, it, may, it lets you feel like Legolas from Lord of the Rings.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree. I think that's uh, totally valid. So,
2: that would be a problem presented by your potential homebrewed rule that could be solved by Spell Sniper or... Right. uh, Yeah, so you're presenting these options of, yes, you can, you will have, you know, either disadvantage or they'll have cover, and, you know, maybe they want to continue doing these trick spell shots or trick, you know, bow and arrow shots, so they would be encouraged to take that feat in the future.
1: I think it encourages the player to focus on a trade, too, and become an expert at what they do, Um, which... Could branch into what you have later, uh, Britain. But being able to take that feat lets you put the stakes higher as well with mm-hmm. those scenarios.
0: Yeah, I agree. For sure. I was just going to say that it uh, this definitely isn't coming out of a point of me being, you know, salty about how good Eldritch Blast is. Um, you know, I, I joke that Eldritch Blast is so good they built an entire class around it. Um, I think it is great, and You should be you know, putting a lot into Eldritch Blast and other things like that, ranged attacks like that. Um, It just, it really came up out of repeatedly coming across that scenario and me not having uh, a good answer to it, thinking, well, wait, can you thread the needle like that with literally no penalty? And I thought, well, maybe there should be something that um, is a mechanic where, hey, if you miss, you might accidentally hit an ally in the shoulder with your Eldritch Blast.
2: Yeah, for sure. So my next combat one that I think, um, I actually really, really like this rule. I don't know how it came about, but I think maybe it was just a discussion during uh, a combat session in my Chicago group on Sunday that when you are rolling for an attack and you match the AC, typically, you know, attacker wins ties. Um, I just think that when you match AC on a hit, it should do half damage because you are just barely getting through their armor. Um, and that works both ways. So if an enemy hits you and matches your AC, it does half damage. And if you hit an enemy and you match their AC, it does half damage. Um, I just overall not much to explain on this one, but I just think it's a really cool like thematically to think about combat, just barely getting through their armor. It shouldn't be all or nothing. You know, it's just like spells, spells get a save where you get like half, or full i think when it comes to matching ac that would also be like half or full not all or nothing there should be an in-between
0: yeah i like that one that's that, that seems reasonable it it might extend the length of combat but um i think it's in in a in a way that makes sense
1: i'm hesitant to say that i like it because right now i do like the sound of it from a DM's perspective, I think I would like the sound of it. But then I start thinking about the higher levels. Like let's say uh, a dragon, whose AC is already incredibly high. And hitting a dragon to do half damage when there's such an HP dump anyway is going to drag that fight on forever. And dragons have maybe one martial attack or two martial attacks, but like most of their attacks are going to be breath weapons which makes them incredibly dangerous. So if you are having a poor knight, and you're rolling a 24 to hit that ancient red dragon, and you just do half damage every time, that feels like it could start to go on and on. And that fight could be very hard.
2: Right. And honestly, to be honest, we have not actually tested this on higher levels. The only, I think... The highest we got in our first game that we used this was level ten. We're level twelve now in our current campaign. I'm not sure how high we're actually going with it. So, uh, to your point, we haven't tested it on any creatures that have a ridiculously high AC. I think you know the last people that we fought, uh, it was like a it was a doomed fight. You know where the DM kind of creates a fight that's too hard for the characters for the characters to fail for either a lesson to be taught or narratively something to happen. They're not gonna get outright killed. Um but yeah, we haven't tested it on on that yet. So I, I'll I'll probably report back to you and let you know <laughs> how frustrated we probably became when we were matching the AC of the ancient red dragon.
1: Yeah. That's that's just where I am skeptical about it. Otherwise I do like it, especially on like humanoid combat. Uh humanoid on humanoid combat, especially if they're armored Uh, You're matching the AC, which means you just barely found where the armor uh, is weak, which Mm -hmm. shouldn't deal fall damage in real life. But then back to the last point that you said, we're in a fantasy world. We're living fantasy. Very true. Very true.
0: All right. Next in combat, um, I just have one more in my list of combat uh, homebrew rules, and this is another one that I would... Uh, like to try out at some point i found this one uh in a a search online but i think it's really cool and that is the idea of uh rolling your death saves privately you know when when a player rolls a death save only that player and the dm knows and i think that is a a bit more realistic about it. it it eliminates the metagaming of knowing that your downed ally just rolled a fail and now you have to go over and you know put a little bit more priority in making sure that they don't die um it uh adds a little bit of tension if you don't know how they're doing.
1: Absolutely. I 100% agree. It would take someone who is observing the downed ally to know what condition they're in. You don't get a magical number above their body when they're sleeping from being knocked out. Uh that just says doing good, stable, or just hey, things are going south. You need to examine the body to see what state they're in and I guess, like, a little bit, like, you can glance at a body and see how it's doing, but not to the point where you are preoccupied in a fight still.
0: You wouldn't be able to look over at them and know that they just rolled a fail. Yeah, there's
1: no way.
2: Yeah, I I 100% agree with this, because then it also kind of puts, it it makes a weird metagame moment where, you know, a player could be like, oh, don't worry, I still have two more death saves, go ahead and attack a little bit more or like a a pressure to be like i only have one more somebody better come save me and then you know maybe feelings are hurt because somebody didn't cast a healing you know spell versus taking an attack because they only had one more death save and it, it should feel a little bit more miraculous when they pull through and i mean on the flip side it may hurt a little bit more when you don't pull through because you didn't know you had no idea that that even happened
1: exactly uh, but a good way to roleplay this is if you roll a fail, the, and then you just tell the DM like privately what how it's going. The DM can then say uh, something along the lines of, you look over and just glance to see the condition of your friend. You see your friend is currently convulsing on the ground with a fail, mm-hmm. which would be a real-life thing that could happen. If you're unconscious, like if you take a head trauma, a concussion, and you're unconscious, convulsions are very normal.
0: Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. Or like a cough up of blood. Maybe that's that's like they're they are conscious again as you see them cough up blood and they start, they have hitched breathing and their eyes are flickering, you know, something.
1: Yeah. That would be a way to combat that. Roll to 10 or higher or a 1 to 9.
2: Yeah. I think that's really, really, really cool. Um, I like that idea a lot narratively. Just because it puts more interaction between the player and the DM and less pressure between players. Um, and it, you know, may encourage your players to take care of each other's characters more. Is Like, as soon as somebody goes down, all right, somebody's got to rush over there.
1: Mm-hmm. But, like, a critical one, be like, this is going to be out of left field, but, like, you see them convulse, and then you also see them, like, lose bodily function at this point. Yeah,
2: it's... It makes it just a little... I think this... It
1: raises the stakes, as a dm you are looking for ways to raise the stakes mm-hmm, for sure yeah without outright and killing I think, your players too
2: and i think it can help you know like like we've said before combat takes forever so i think kind of reinvigorating some people's passion for for the turns in combat especially after a long fight may help
1: mm, for sure uh If we're done, I have a very quick combat one that everyone does, but no one really notices anymore. Uh, And What I've noticed that everyone does. And this one is just offhand attacks still use modifiers. And I think rules is written, say, like if you attack with a dagger with your main hand, you get your strength or dexterity plus your proficiency to attack, and then you get your strength as your damage, or dexterity as damage as well. But offhand, the damage doesn't use either the strength or dexterity for the attack roll or it's the damage roll. And I just, I, you still get to use those modifiers for both damage and attack roll because you're trained in offhand attacks. You shouldn't lose that ability score. If you like are just attacking with your hand that you are still probably trained in, you're an expert in your field and you're adventuring. You shouldn't lose that modifier.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing to that as well. Um, yeah, you're 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 trained to be able to do that, so you should be able to hit just as hard.
2: And I know that that kind of takes away the whole two weapon fighting thing, but at the same time, like you're not going to have something in your offhand if you don't know how to use it properly. And I don't know if I'd agree that like two weapon fighting should exist in the sense of just giving you your modifier damage on your second attack.
1: Yeah. See. I am of the mindset that two-up and fighting, if you have it on your character sheet, which every character has two-up and fighting on their character sheet, that just means that you you know what you're doing. You're used to surviving. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's just my quick last combat thing.
2: Yeah. So moving on to the RP rules. I know we have we had a little bit more about combat because 5e combat can be a little bit more malleable when it comes to creating homebrew rules for things that work for us. Um, moving on to RP-focused ones, one that I have always had a beef with, which if I was ever a DM, I would go ahead and move forward with this one immediately, is that druids and clerics specifically, when making nature and religion checks, respectively, should be able to use their wisdom modifier instead of intelligence. That should be a choice that they make if they would like to. Um, for for druids, they glean their magic and all of their knowledge essentially from nature. and clerics are essentially priests who have studied their religion as probably as well as religions of other gods. they should not have to, take some sort of negative if their character is not intelligent they shouldn't have to worry about well the wizard is probably going to make religion checks better than me just because they're literally smarter but it's like they weren't trained in this they don't just because you know proficiency doesn't really outweigh a whole modifier's worth of bonuses to a skill so that's just why i think that druids and clerics should be able to use wisdom in when they're making the skill check for nature and religion.
0: Um, yeah, that just makes a lot of sense. Um, for those specific types of skills, and I think you can definitely apply this to other classes with their respective skill set, um, those things aren't book learned, right? If you're a druid, you don't go and read books and study nature to learn nature. It's literally what you grow up around. It's It's an ingrained part of who you are. It's not something that you memorized in a book. It's something that you just know inherently, uh, instinctively almost. Um, Same thing for, like you were saying, uh, clerics and religion. And I think you can apply that to other skills with other classes that this is just part of who they are. It's not something that they have to, you know, gleam from a
1: book. It's just knowledge that they have at the ready because it's who they are. Exactly. This is where I want to tag team right off you, Jaren. The most common skill swap for ability scores is like a barbarian or a fighter intimidating with a strength score as opposed to a charisma score. That... Mm, you do, mm. If you see someone who is six foot six, rippling muscles, and they tell you to move, are you going to say, nah, your charisma's too low? Yeah. Like, are you, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, you could bench me and then throw me a hundred feet away. I'm going to move out of the way. Like, that... I think skill checks should be based on your expertise in something. That doesn't mean you should have, like, charisma-based insight, which also would be kind of a cool idea. I'm going to drop that for now, though, because, like, <laughs> hey, that person looks shady, then lets you perceptively look at something. Uh, but then that's typecasting, that's all that stuff over there. <laughs> the whole mess of worms maybe we don't want to get into. Yeah. So maybe I'll drop that charisma-based insight idea.
2: But no, I I, I fully agree, especially with, you know, the, the strength-based intimidation check. Like, I would fully agree that someone who is huge and hulking is probably going to get me to move a little bit more than a bard like it just I mean I'm going for extremes here Goliath barbarian rippling muscles with a bloody axe standing in front of me saying get out of my way versus a gnome bard with a piccolo saying hey could you move please
0: right that does remind me um in another game we did s- we did more of like a generalized version of this where um our dm allowed us to use Uh, any skill that we wanted for a check, if we could describe a way that made sense to use that skill. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, you know, kind of the same thing of like, you know, using your strength to intimidate um, or maybe using, I don't know, your knowledge of religion to persuade a, a local townsfolk with your, instead of charisma, because this town happens to be very, very religious. And you use the fact that you are a very religious person with knowledge of it to, You know, make that what would otherwise be a charisma check. I don't
1: know. And another example, too, that I was actually just thinking of is a dex-based athletics check. If you are in a town or in a city with a lot of alleyways, it doesn't take a strength athletics check to dart through alleyways without tripping and falling. And it's not necessarily acrobatics. You are running, but you also have to be nimble on your feet enough to make sharp turns and then uh, dodge law if you're a rogue or something like that.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I've always thought of acrobatics and athletics. I mean, maybe this is, you know, a conversation for another time, but I've always thought that acrobatics and athletics have kind of been, the, the lines have been blurred a little bit as to what that role would actually look like. I think acrobatics more as parkour or like jumping from building to building or climbing up something with a rope, doing, you know, very acrobatic things versus athletics is more of um lifting a you know lifting a cart off of someone or heaving something over your shoulder that's really strong um yeah so i i would agree that some of those lines get blurred and i think that being able to make athletics checks because like you said darting through alleyways is not really acrobatics because you're just running all you're doing is running nimbly
1: yeah so if you ask your player to make a dex or make an athletics check, but use your dex instead of your strength, because I know that that's your skill set, but I want you to do athletics specifically. It lets you narrow down the goal that you uh, or you help them understand why you're using that skill, if you can explain mm-hmm. it.
2: Furthermore, athletics, if anything, should be constitution, because what, when you think about an athlete, you think about somebody who's who can endure and their body can be put through stress. That's again, conversation for another time, but potentially I think that athletics could be a con based skill since there is no con based skill.
1: Yeah, that, that, okay. That one, I was like, there should be at least one or two more con based skills, just like there should be one or two more strength based skills. There's a lot of deck Mm -hmm. skills, a lot of wisdom, a lot of charisma, a lot of insight skill or a lot of uh, intelligence skills but there's not a lot of con and strength skills.
0: Yeah, you're right. I'm just not realizing that
1: maybe
2: instead of like nature and religion, there should just be like a research skill, like just book smart skill. Like it, I don't know. Like, why is there two for something? Why is there two that is basically just two? It'd be like a math and social studies skill. Like, why are there two skills involving like subjects that you would study in school? Why, why Why? wouldn't you just do, like, a school check or a research check? Academics. Yeah, an academics check.
1: If you were to make an academics check, I think you should use whatever mental, uh, mental ability you want. So if you're a wizard and you wanted to, do, to make an academics check, you would use your research ability, like intelligence. Or if you're a druid and you want to make a nature check, you use your life uh, experience to do that as an academics check. And that'd be wisdom. And then a bard, street smarts, right? That's charisma. Street smarts is a hundred percent charisma. Like some would yeah. say, it's wisdom, um, I... but like it's your personal, personable uh, experience that you have made.
2: Yeah, I'm writing these down right now, literally for the next episode about beefs with Five b <laughs> We're talking about skills, We're talking it's about why I'm skills. mad at
1: skills. Yeah, yeah we agreed. we did kind of go off on a tangent, didn't we? <laughs>
2: just just a tad, but that's that's okay. It happens all the time.
0: That's all right. Bringing it back around, what's the, what's the next one on the list for RP? <laughs> Damage jam with your RP. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so the, the next one that I've written down, I know I, I did just go, um, but the next one that I do have written down is, uh, so we have what are, you know, free actions, quote unquote, in combat. We use those to speak. So I know I said this is the RP section, but this is more of the RP side of combat. You know, you are using your character knowledge and character choices to make a choice to say something in combat. Um, Generally, these things are no longer than a sentence to say, watch out for that trap, or this guy's covered in poison, or I see an amulet of Vecna around his neck. Like, things to tip off your party or things that you might say to another character. Maybe a character's jumping in far too fast into combat, saying, like, Hey, Bing Bong, come back here! You know that's that could be a free action in combat, and then maybe you hold your action to cast slow something. Um, I don't. Again, it's we're going back to action economy on this one, but I think that taking up a whole action to say something that you could say while swinging a sword is kind of silly.
0: Sure, I agree, and I think there's some restrictions with that as well. You know, uh, you you can't sit there and plan out the next three turns for 20 minutes as your free action, but you might be able to say a sentence in that six seconds.
2: Mm-hmm. Because we are thinking about six seconds, but also at the same time, they're, like, happening simultaneously, but the rules of 5e combat are kind of bonkers and weird if you think about casting spells and drinking potions and taking bonus actions and things like that. We're kind of stretching the limitations of six seconds here, but, you know, it is fantasy. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, on top of that, I uh, the best way to describe combat in fifth edition is anime fights. Anime yeah, anime fights it really is take so long but are so short. And that's just what we're doing. We're all lined up face to face and then once initiative starts, we kick off and we sprint. And then we just go right into the fight.
2: Yeah. I have you huh? ever run into something like this, Lane, where your players need to talk in combat?
1: I've always just let it happen. Uh, you've seen, like, I guess a good example of this is like Pirates of the Caribbean, Will, and like the first one, Curse of the Black Pearl, uh, Will and Jack Sparrow are fighting in the sword shop, and they are bantering as they are fighting. That it's, mm, mm-hmm. It just makes sense that you should be able to talk, give information, or take information while you are currently defending and or attacking.
2: Yes, I, I fully agree, and I think that's actually a really good um, example of combat, and RP during combat.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I didn't want to be the one to bring it, but also critical role. Uh, the character Beauregard is a type of monk on there that extracts aspects from a character or from a creature, and when they do that, they shout out what goes on with this character. And I didn't want to be the one to bring up another D&D podcast just to <laughs> use that, but that's... An, it's okay, we talk about it all the yeah. time. That's that's another example of in-game stuff that could happen where you can give a call-out and aid your friends.
2: I think, actually, in our... Uh, a couple of sessions ago when we were fighting a stone giant, uh, Lane, your character actually was uh, shooting off arrows as the rogue and it wasn't doing that much and my character knew the spell that was being cast and my character had said something about, like, you have to use silvered weapons and that was only because he knew... or not silvered, you have to use magical weapons and that's just because he knew the spell that was being cast gave them resistance to non-magical damage. So I think that's another like free action point where you're kind of non-metagaming, but using your character to tip off the other players of like, hey, I know
1: about this. And that's another example too. Like I'm trying not to metagame. I've been around the block with 5th edition and then Dungeons & Dragons in general. Uh, On top of that, my character just had no magical weapons at that time. So I couldn't do... Jack in that combat, except just keep trying to do <laughs> I felt so bad. to keep doing sneak attack if possible.
2: Hey, get get your max damage wherever you can, regardless of if they're
1: resistance to it. Exactly. Uh I have an RP one that I really like that I've used before. In fact, jaren when I was DMing for your your group uh almost what, a year and a half ago or two years ago? Yeah, it was. It's been a uh, while. For character creation, if you don't want to come up with a backstory, at minimum, what I'm going to ask you to do is to give me four rumors about yourself. I want one positive and true rumor about yourself. I want a positive but not true rumor about yourself. I want a negative true rumor about yourself and then a negative false rumor about yourself. An example of this would be uh, just a positive true rumor. You could be like, oh, yeah, my gnome bard is really good in bed. I don't know. <laughs> And that may also help you or hurt you in social social situations, especially if it's a town that you frequent. And then a positive, that, a positive that's false so one. cool. Yeah. And then a positive false one would be like, oh yeah, no, I, I know who, uh, Grognak is. They saved my cat like six years ago. It's something that gives your character a positive reputation, but Grognak didn't save that cat, like. That was someone else.
2: That's really cool because it like, I know character creation can be very intimidating, especially when it comes to literally just the backstory, deciding where they came from, who they are, and trying to make those character choices about them. I think that can be very intimidating for new players. So taking that away and just talking about what do people say about you, now that gives the DM plenty of information to play with and that gives the player plenty of opportunities to decide if their character is going to lean into those rumors or shy away from those rumors or lie about those
1: rumors exactly and i think like the biggest if we did a pop culture reference again for a negative false rumor would be like the witcher witchers take children and eat them and it has this like all witchers are now feared in society for talking about this world but it's not true. Like, witchers, if they took children, they took children to train them to become witchers. But it's still not entirely true, but it has a level of fear behind them. And that gives your character a sense of fear uh, in the populace. Or a sense of uh, mm, unreliability, mm-hmm. even. Yeah. yeah. And then on top spoiler of Spoiler alert. They don't eat children. <laughs> spoiler. Uh, Geralt has never eaten child before. Um, <laughs> Damn. But, like, even something simple as, like... Oh yeah. Uh, he was supposed to deliver this package, and he never did. And it could have been like a miscommunication between this character and another character and this character or the NPC sp- like just started spreading rumors to delve hate with this person. Then you have a bond. Mm, mm-hmm. You have a bond right there. And coming up with unique bonds in Dungeons and Dragons, it has been very hard. I've found. Mm, yes. Like why do I feel tied to this world? Oh, because I have an enemy who I wronged at some point in life.
2: Having an enemy can be a very, very strong bond and a very good hook for adventures.
1: And I think I used this uh, with your campaign, Jaren, but you gave me backstory, so I didn't really... like. I said you could do this if you wanted to, but I didn't really uh, use it too much. We had another player who didn't really care too much about backstory, uh, and I'm... Um, it was just, they wanted to use the rumors, and it gave him a bond, gave him a purpose, and they had a very strong character after that.
0: Was that Chris's character?
1: It was Chris's character. It was, uh, it was his paladin.
0: Valen. Yeah. You know, funny side note, before we circle back to our homebrew rules, um... A long time ago, back when 5th edition was first new, I DM'd Horde of the Dragon Queen for my roommates and for Chris. And I went back and I found my old notes for that. And turns out his character for that also named Valen.
1: <laughs> All right. I mean, his character before, I guess it was Valen, Valen. And then you were Phelan? I forgot yeah. what your name was.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a very popular ending to a name.
1: Yeah. Darn elves and half elves.
2: Oh god, there was a drow named Phalas in my campaign. Oh my god. Oh, oh no. no,
1: and then I also played a drow named Phalas. Oh god. We're so
0: unoriginal, guys. Anyways, let's uh circle it back, let's throw it back, let's talk about some homebrew rules, eh?
1: Yeah. yeah. I have two more uh I have one that's actually very quick that you guys just be like, oh that makes sense, and then we'll probably move on. Uh okay. basic supplies you if okay. You don't need to buy or eat basic supplies. If you wanted to be hungry and poor all the time, we would just live our lives. <laughs> right. Why yeah, would we roleplay I, a fantasy world where, where we are also hungry and poor? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I agree. Yeah. And I, I
2: definitely hate. I'm, I know some DMs are sticklers about it. I hate buying food rations. It's like, it's just implied that we find them somewhere or that, like, in the downtime, I shouldn't have to be like, okay, I walk to the river, I cup my hands, I drink eight <laughs> ounces of water, how much will that sustain me for the day? Like, yeah. shut up, we all have water skins, we all have, like, what I think my friend, when he DM'd, he, like what like literally the first in session zero he's like your characters stumble upon a chest with five rings in them you slip them on your fingers you now feel that you no longer need to eat drink or poop <laughs> congratulations
0: i wasn't gonna like, say perfect. It, but that's where i was that's where i was going that's where i was going <laughs> yeah
2: it's it's perfect that's and i and i love that that's there we go it's a homebrewed rule that you can use feel free to or not so, like i said some dms are very sticklers about that straight up um, magic. i item. would definitely not be yeah.
0: <laughs> You you didn't role play going I, to the bathroom. I need you to make a constitution save.
2: Right. <laughs> I do I will say there is something kind of magical about, you know, your your group going to a tavern and eating together for the sure. first time or making a habit sure. out of eating together. But you don't need to role play every single meal. Oh, yeah. Like that's kind of a thing in our campaign in Chicago is on Sundays uh our our warlock who's maxed charisma, uh our DM makes her role performance checks for how good the breakfast is, because her character is just the chef. She makes food all the time. So that's so good. That's kind of her thing. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, that's her thing. But also, she's one-armed, and it's kind of fun to think about a one-armed chef chopping potatoes and onions um, and making food for <laughs> five other people.
1: To be fair, in our current campaign, if my character were to die, I think I would be a chef. Like, that's, oh, that's my mm-hmm. backstory. It's just, I love the idea of just like, hey, I'm going to go to town and pick up food, and that's something for utility later. Or I think this my what I have for role-playing homebrew rules, but I'll, we'll circle back when we get to utility for a little bit. But like, just coming up with yeah. a shopping list and then saying, hey, I bought this for this much money. You don't need to do a montage for it or a shopping right. montage for it. If players want to yeah. do that,
0: that's fine. But yeah, I, I really like that that uh, as, a, as an overall rule you can just buy those things you can you don't have to role play buying food or eating food unless you want to have that tavern experience we can certainly do that um you know and, and all those other things that we already mentioned too mm-hmm. uh, that does uh kind of uh segue i guess into a rule that i had in another game that i, I was playing in which i really liked And that was this idea of general supply. And we had these supply points, basically. And this represented things that our character would have remembered to bring along that we might not necessarily have in our specific inventory. You know, maybe you forgot to... You know, uh, pick up torches when you're in town. You forgot to go and say, Yeah, we're going to go buy torches. But it's definitely something that you, as experienced adventurers, would remember to bring and have on you. So you just say, Well, I have 10 supply points. You know, I can spend one of those to say that I just have them. And if it's something more complicated or difficult to obtain, you know, maybe it, it costs a lot more to say, um, Yeah, my character would have remembered to go and buy a diamond before we left. Well, maybe. Maybe you would have, but it's going to cost you a lot more, quote, supply.
1: Yeah. I do like the idea of having supply points, too, because you don't know the situation you're going to be in always as the player, but your characters, as seasoned adventurers, would know where they're headed. A character who doesn't have dark vision would have a lantern or torches. That just makes sense. But mm-hmm. with all the races available to play in Dungeons and Dragons, it's easy as the player to forget that you have dark vision.
0: Right. And, and maybe you're brand new and you're playing a character and you, you f- forgot to say that that's what you're going to do. You as that, that character as an adventurer would certainly know to pick up a lantern or torches or whatever it is. Um, but you, you, you as the player shouldn't be penalized because this is your first game.
1: 100%. Right. Um, and then my last role-playing thing I got... Is passive skill checks versus active skill checks. If you're a rogue, and your expertise is in stealth, and you just want to tail someone in a city that you are familiar with, that's your environment, I'm not going to make you roll. I'm going to take your passive uh, stealth check, and that's just what you get. It's 10 plus whatever your stealth ability is. And that's the save that they have, or the perception check that they have to make to even begin to notice you. If they begin to notice you, then you make an active check against it.
0: Ah, that makes sense. Sort of the the home field advantage.
1: Yeah. Like, what I really want it to be is, if you're a rogue, and you've been doing this for years, and someone rolls a 19 to see if they're being tailed, and your stealth score is 10 plus 9, and that just barely meets it, then I will tell my player, I need you to make a stealth check. And then that kicks it in to try and beat the 19 then.
0: Yeah, that that does not make sense. It's an area that you're familiar with, and you're doing something that you are definitely really good at.
1: And long jumps. Like, there's the rule where, like, you just can do a running long jump and you jump your strength score. But you can overexert if you're more athletic, if you can. Uh, I guess is more of a poor example with long jumps, but... The passive skill check just to save time. Again, combat eats up the most time. Role playing, I want the players to be able to play their character and not have to constantly roll the dice every five seconds.
2: Yeah. Even like, you know, we're talking about combat taking a while. Anything that involves a dice roll can just kind of put a halt to things. It can, you know, spice things up, definitely, if you're super succeeding or super failing. But also, like, all right, I talked to this this person i just want to like get to know them all right make a charisma check like shut up no i don't want to (laughs) i just want to talk i'm a human i can open up my mouth and talk
1: i also have a gripe with a lot of dms because i'm guilty of this jaron you've been guilty of this every dm i've ever had has been guilty of this npcs aren't always hostile to talk to the players oh man every dm has at some point been like ah oh, fuck off as sorry for language but like ah oh, fuck off if you are talking to me i have no business in your world and i don't care about you i think npcs oh yeah i've done that too i think npcs would love to see adventurers especially like ones who are super powerful <laughs> that's like a local celebrity coming in and asking you a commoner just where the tavern is and i I, i'm remembering an example jaren where we came in asking where a tavern was and you legitimately said ah fuck off i don't want to help you
0: oh did i oh shit (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) and like internally i was laughing i was rolling at the thought that just an npc was like i don't want to help you get out of my way it's not my time of day
2: my sorcerer with a golden crown and a crested eagle on his shoulder and flowing robes Hello, sir. Can you please help me find the local drinkery? Er! Hey, fuck you. Get out of here. Um,
0: sorry, <laughs> like, that wasn't the NPC. That was me, Jaren, telling you to fuck off.
2: <laughs> that was me. Out of game. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to make up a tavern. <laughs> All right. Well, circling back again once more <laughs> to the homebrewed rules, we're finishing up here with our utility ones. Um, so I I have an idea an opinion about expertise i don't like the fact that expertise is uh, delegated only to the bard and rogue class i think that if you are a character and you are using a skill over and over and over at some point you should be able to just gain expertise in it i think you're it'd be a conversation with you and your dm maybe say hey i want to in the future i want to be an expert in medicine I, you know, I, I, I love being a healer and I think that I want to use more medicine checks and I want to become proficient and have expertise in medicine. And I think that after many, pro- what, maybe we'll just say like 15, after 15 roles that are above an 18, you, you just become an expert in medicine because you are now gaining those skills and you are using it over and over and over. So I think you should be able to be an expert in one thing.
1: I agree. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Especially every class is an expert in some way. They are a specialist. Uh, Rogues Mm -hmm. don't just get expertise at being sneaky because that's just what they do. Our bards don't get experts in things just because they are well-learned in the way of people. Barbarians should get athletic expertise if they really wanted to be athletically prowessed. Uh, Rangers should be able to use nature Uh, checks to their advantage or like or even druids
2: or like if you had expertise in perception as a ranger like that's what you're supposed to like rangers are supposed to be scouts they're supposed to have like be perceptive and i think that being able to have expertise in that would be you'd feel so good like all right i will take first watch absolutely i am the expert in perception i will keep you guys safe
0: Uh, Sure. So I have one for a utility. Uh, This is an idea that I'd like to try out. I have not played with this one. Um, I think that this is specifically for potions, but I I disliked the idea that potions have so much element of inconsistency and randomness Um, in a world where it's so easy to restore hit points you know, you have multiple classes with with cure wounds and whatnot, and uh, you can take short rests and expend hit die and take long rests and gain all your hit points back. Um, and in a world where, like modern D&D today, we're not simply just grinding dungeons forever and having, you know, two, three, four encounters with goblins every session, there's a lot of roleplay elements to D&D today. Um, to spend 50 gold on a potion, and it has 2d4 plus 2 hit points to restore, where it could potentially just restore four hit points. You spent 50 gold to restore four hit points is a little bit disappointing. So one thing that I'd like to try out is maybe uh, potions always restore the maximum, but over time, the potency goes down. You keep track. I don't know how it would be, but maybe uh, when you add something, when you add a potion to your inventory, you write down the in real world date so you can go, oh, I got that back on uh, April 10th. Well, I remember what was going on in that campaign then. So that's like a month of you know, in-game time, so it's not as strong as it was before. I'm not really sure, but that's kind of where I'm starting from.
1: What do you guys think?
2: I mean, I think when we were talking about it beforehand, I someone had used the analogy of it being like a soda going flat. Uh, yeah,
1: a carbonated uh, potion. And after, like, it's shelf life. It's just flat.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, potions should have... It's like... It is literally like buying anything that is mass-produced. I know that, you know, in the world of 5e, there are people who are specialists to enchant these potions and whatnot. But, you know, again, it's a fantasy world. I think that the rules of capitalism apply here. Um, You are buying a product. You expect that product to be the product that it is. But over time, that product will not be the product that you bought. Like any food, any consumable, that product can go bad. But at its peak, at sell-by date that's going to be when it's its best
0: mm-hmm. like it just feels so bad like when you spend 50 gold on a potion and you only get you know four hit points back it feels so bad just like it feels really bad to roll the minimum on a critical hit um it just mm-hmm. it sucks when you need that restorative uh nature of, of, of potions and it you know you, just because of a bad dice roll it just isn't that great
1: now yeah here's the flip side of that let me play devil's advocate uh, casting the spell Cure Wounds, you could still roll a one on that Cure Wounds and only do this one plus spellcasting modifier. You have now used a spell slot, which is also a valuable resource, and it has done minimum healing. And I guess on the flip side, because these potions are enchanted and used magic, the magic is also just as unreliable as the potions are. That's that's fair.
2: I would say then to maybe like it should maybe instead of you're buying a potion, you are buying the enchantment and like it is being ch- enchanted right in front of you. So the DM is rolling the dice right in front of you and you are paying for the amount of healing or something where it's like, all right, I have a potion that will heal me 13 hit points. I know that for a fact. Let me put this in my yeah. bag. Or I have a potion that's going to heal me 100. Put that in the barbarian's bag. Maybe, maybe like, the maybe I, the
0: whole rule then that they... The written homebrew rule should be that you roll the uh, the potion's potency at the time you get it, instead of when you take it. Just so, I, you, just so you know.
1: Yeah, I like that one. I like how I like that walk around, and that's a good middle ground for both the magic being unreliable at the time, and it also gives a chance for the shopkeeper to be like, you know, this was not my best work, thirty-five gold.
2: Right.
0: On the on the flip side, though, maybe if it's a maximum hit point 1 it's a little bit more than 50
1: yeah exactly but like the 50 gold would be like the net average and right yeah before we move on i have to, i hate to say it but i have five utility ones that i feel are very important
2: yeah i mean go for it i i, I would love to hear um you know another person's perspective cuz jaron and i even in our free time talk about homebrewed rules so i'm pretty sure we're definitely say, saying things that we've heard before
1: yeah uh i'm just going to start with number one the big one player deaths resurrection has its toll uh you get your first death and you get your first resurrection for free after that there's a dc that the character no the resurrector has to roll to beat every time and each time you die that dc increases because dying takes its toll on the body every time.
0: Yeah, I like that. And so in in that sort of world, I would imagine that you are less careful about killing players, right? If, if there is going to be that um, a little bit easier time resurrecting players with, with a cost, clearly. Um, but I imagine if this mechanic exists, it's a kind of world where resurrection is... Not incredibly difficult to come by. Um, In that case, uh, I imagine combat's a little bit more grueling and sometimes deadly.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'm a DM that favors deadly encounters over uh, easy ones. Uh, Jaren, you might have experienced this. And that's just because I love when a fight can go south, but I also love when a hard fight can be won. Oh, for sure. It's that much more rewarding. Uh, what are your thoughts on resurrection, <laughs> Britton?
2: I I mean I would agree I I. You're right that dying takes its toll, and I think it should get harder every time somebody dies. Um, and there should be some sort of consent from the player, obviously, because it's depending on the emotional investment of the player. Losing a character can be very traumatic. And you may just want to wash your hands of it and say, my character does not want to come back.
1: Yeah, and actually, that's what it says in each of the resurrection spells wording, if the soul is willing. Mm -hmm. So the player then has the choice, I don't actually want to come back. I think my character wants to just be at rest. uh, A
2: character in my Sunday campaign died a couple weeks ago. And his character, based on his backstory, is very... Uh, reverent of the dead they know that the dead is dead and their ancestors live with them through their magical weaponry so he was like i i am not coming back i want to die if i'm going to die don't save me i will be with my ancestors
1: and this is uh outside of our current game but like if my character ever died my character wouldn't want to come back my character had like a shitty backstory past and honestly it's just like, has found a little bit of redemption and is now at peace with their past life. That's fair. Uh, yeah, so there's a little tidbit about that. Um, so, so, kill, kill foreign. Yeah, <laughs> you, right. yeah, just get rid of foreign. Yeah. I will probably be a wizard chef when I come back. Uh, then, my real-life example of resurrection having its toll. You've played the game Dead by Daylight. I've watched you stream Dead by Daylight. Uh, when someone gets hooked... You can pull them off once, they get hooked again, you can pull them off twice, but it's harder, like, it's, you have to be there quicker. But once they get mm-hmm. hooked that third time, it's almost gone. It's done.
2: Yeah, there's only so many times that you can, like, bring someone back before it's just impossible. And, you know, you think about all of the countless fantasy things you've seen about somebody trying to extend their life, yeah, you can do it once, maybe twice, but, like, three times in past, like, it's gonna be far too difficult and probably unsafe to
1: bring them back uh moving on for more utility stuff components that cost or are consumed are the only components and spells that matter to me if you have a Mm, component mm -hmm. that you have in your component pouch and you cast it like fireball requires back and phosphorus the spell does not consume those i don't care they stay in your pockets the entire time but like uh hero's feast has a chalice required or a thousand gold pieces that is consumed that matters to me uh uh, chromatic orb requires something that's like 50 gold pieces for a diamond i think and that is not consumed but it costs money and if it costs money it has a value to it i want it in there because you can also repurpose that diamond for a higher spell like revivify
0: right and sometimes those components are really obscure and weird like we talked about um, a few episodes ago when we were looking at uh, the summon spells in Tasha's, um, some of those weird components—they're so
1: insane. Yeah, they
0: they sometimes lend themselves to interesting side quests for your characters. Why the fuck do I, I need like a they... nighthawk
1: feather and an opal worth a hundred gold pieces? Where am I gonna find these? Good question. Good yeah,
2: luck. one of them is like a one of them is like a a crystal locket full of tears, <laughs> and it needs to be gilded, and it's like. All right, you must really want to cast
1: this spell if you're going to go find that thing. I need a playing card deck box encrusted with six gems, but no cards can be inside. Right? What? Yeah. Why? I,
2: w- I would piggyback off of yours, Lane, and say that my DM is has kind of taken that rule and uh, morphed it as well as sixth level and higher that require... Com- that need components you need to have it but anything fifth level and lower you do not need to have components or like say that you go get them just because they're not that powerful of spells you know fifth level and lower fifth level is a little bit damagey you can start doing some turning up the heat a little bit but sixth level and higher is where the really big like game changing spells happen so i would i would agree that most components are things it's just like eating like i don't need to go get grasshopper legs like I, i got them I, I went to go get them. I have them.
1: Yeah. I guess when you mentioned it earlier before the podcast started recording with the sixth level and higher, it made me think of Raise Dead and Revivify where you need those diamonds of like 500 or 300 gold that are consumed. It's for me, it's like the yeah. ones that are consumed need to be uh, prioritized and sought out. Yeah.
2: I think that's the, the kind of the Venn diagram of, you know, what makes them like ne- necessary as long as it is not, like an if-then statement, but as long as it's not consumed or have a gold attached to it, it does not like need to be necessarily gotten or doesn't need to be explicitly said that you have it. Um, but if it does either have gold attached to it or is above six level or material component that is very specific, then you do.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then some of the last ones I have... This will be circling back to that role-playing, uh, section where I said basic supplies. If we wanted to role-play being poor and broke, we would just live our lives. Uh, general (laughs) supplies, for every game I lead, I post the common shops, uh, inventory in a separate, like, Discord channel or in the group chat and say, you can reference this, uh, when it comes to shopping and picking up these supplies, just send me your shopping list, mark off your gold, you get those items. Uh... And I think even in our Discord channel for our game, I have the shopping and, market, like, the offline marketplace in there. So yeah, you can go in there. and buy things.
2: Is that to alleviate any sort of, like, shopping montages of, like, well, oh, good sir, do you have one singular potion? And do you have these little minutiae things? Yeah, like, like do you have... to say, like,
1: I got this. Do you have a thousand arrows that I could have? Like, right. just mark off the gold, get as many quivers as you need, and the transaction is done. Like... I love role-playing shopkeepers, don't get me wrong. But for some players, just sitting through a shopping montage is such a drag. Yeah.
2: It's only fun if they're interesting things that they're buying. Exactly.
1: So only interesting shops should have interesting shopkeepers. Uh, But like Mm -hmm. the Lion Shield Coster in the Sword Coast? No, just go in, get a shield, get a potion of healing, and get your arrows and leave. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think the one that I saved, and this was just to, for myself, not go insane at the table, if you want to do an action, tell me as the DM what you want to do, and I will tell you what to roll. The thing I want to eliminate is my players saying, I'm going to do an insight check, and they already roll their dice before I have processed what they said. And I don't know if you guys have ever run into that.
2: It's a habit that I've tried to break of myself. I've tried to just change the wording of do I believe him or is he lying to me? And then that gives the opportunity of the DM to say, all right, roll an insight check. Um, I actually saw a TikTok about this very sad thing about the DM saying, I don't like it when my players do this because it doesn't feel like I'm actually kind of narrating or I'm being in the driver's seat. It feels like my players are just running away with the story and doing whatever they want versus I'm presenting options for you
1: it is the true definition of putting the cart before the horse yeah yes
0: i i have seen uh situations i think i think this this one was definitely appropriate um i was playing with a friend of mine and uh he would sometimes roll for outcomes but it was where it was literally just flavor outcomes you know he would he he would describe a thing or a scenario would be present in he would roll a die and then say, and Brewster loses his lunch. <laughs> you know, so it was like totally didn't didn't have any bearing on the outcome. It was literally just rolling for flavor.
2: I'm, I've done that several times for like con checks if my character is gonna cry about something um because I'm truly conflicted about my my character being like, I don't know, would would they let me let me roll and just see and then I will just I'll go with the outcome.
1: Yeah. The last thing I have on utility for myself is another thing that drives me insane. And it's just a way to keep the dice on the table. If your die falls off the table when you are making a check because you recklessly rolled it, that is automatically a no action.
2: I love the idea of a rogue going up to disable a trap and then the t- the dice rolls
1: off the table and the rogue just stops. Yeah, never mind. Yeah uh it just turns around and walks away it not even walks away but your character pauses and then that is the end of your turn i and it's just a way because in combat especially if you're like i'm gonna make an attack and you roll the dice and you do this big roll and it rolls up the table then we have to spend time looking for your dice mm-hmm. right and it's then automates. combat which already so long takes even longer
2: it's the sense of propriety that we're missing from dungeons and dragons I have... Keep your dice on the table.
1: It's not... Okay, sometimes it is hard. Because sometimes you just want to build a dice tower, and then the (laughs) dice tower falls. Mm -hmm. And I understand fidgeting with dice. It's just hard that when it's actively your turn, and you're actively supposed to be doing something. Yeah. And then you just throw your dice. Oh, yeah.
2: But we've definitely all been guilty of it, and we'll definitely all be guilty of it in the future. For
0: sure. (laughs) Well, I have... Well, I have one uh, last rule and I'm not really sure where this even falls if it's utility or roleplay or combat I think it kind of fall in all of them depending on depending on how you view spells if you only view spells as being a combat thing or if you're like the type of player that likes to use fireball as a roleplaying tool um, but I like the idea um, this idea of overexertion or maybe um, you know we could tie this into, um, Maybe we could tie this into exhaustion, but it's the idea that um, once you are using the spellcaster example, once you're out of spells, you can have one last burst, cast one more first level spell, and after that, maybe you have one or two levels of exhaustion where you have disadvantage on your rolls or uh, all your attacks as well. It's the idea that, like, if you're thinking about um, a real world example of somebody that uh, is a runner, you know, and you're on your last little bit and you're totally at the end of your, your run. No energy left, but you're like, you know what? I'm going to burn the tank. I'm going to sprint the last six blocks and you finish it out. It might never matter. And after that, you're just completely spent for the next half an hour. You can't do anything except try to catch your breath. Try to bring yourself back to the present. And I kind of like that in, in um, a spellcasting d and uh, context as well. You know, you spend all your spells, you have one last thing, or maybe it's in combat, and you need to cast shield so you don't die, and you burn that last little bit of arcane energy that's in the reserve tank. But after that, well, guess what? For the next hour or next short rest or whatever, um, you have one level of exhaustion or two levels of exhaustion. So, like, literally, you can't really do much. You're going to have disadvantage on pretty much everything until you kind of come back to the present. Um, So what do you guys think
1: about that? Uh, I actually pulled up the, le- the rules for exhaustion. And I, I love the idea, too, of a wizard trying to cast shield to keep themselves alive. And that goes into death takes its toll on you. The same goes for keeping yourself alive in the face of death also takes its toll on you. So if you pull from your reserves and you cast shield and it does just save your life, yeah, that is a level of exhaustion. And then say they're making a second attack and you do it again. Your speed's halved. And then disadvantage on attack rolls, saving throws. I would just say the exhaustion lasts until you finish a rest. Not until uh, like an hour. Because you really are overexerting yeah, I... yourself for something that is greatly powerful. Mm-hmm. Those first level spell slots, especially in any combat, are super useful in the action economy. And If you've run out of spell slots and you're willing to trade literally part of your physical life, that that's worth a level one spell slot.
2: Mm-hmm. I I really like the idea of the, the desperation of burning yourself to the point of exhaustion um, to possibly turn the tide or save yourself. But I would also imagine that it has to go both ways. You know, maybe another creature is casting these spells, and that's maybe where I would be a little bit unsure about how I feel about it, just because what, like, you're trying to fight another spellcaster, and they're doing the same thing to you. Um, and that extends combat. But I, I like the idea of, um, perhaps non-combat or things like that, where you're just trying to get through the day and you're, you're expending these spells to, it, maybe it would be like one exhaustion level per like slot level. So yeah, you could cast a second level, but you'd take two points of exhaustion. Now hear
1: me out. You cast the teleport spell at seventh level and you die to get your no to get you to die. get your whole party out of a dangerous situation but you drop dead on arriving
2: Yeah, it could be very dramatic. Yeah. It could be very cool. I do
1: like that idea. Hmm. I do like that idea. And then a real Yeah,
2: anything that's higher than 6 would you just drop dead <laughs> cast the wish spell yeah. and you just drop dead.
1: Uh and then another way to do that is also or a way to observe it in pop culture. Uh, have you guys seen the Hobbit movies?
0: Oh, yes, of course.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Thorin Oakenshield is fighting the Pale Orc in the flashback, and he is beaten down his shield and weapon is cast aside, he grabs a makeshift shield, the oak branch, and he keeps taking damage over and over. You can tell he's exhausted, and he's overexerting himself, but that does turn the tide. But at what cost? Right. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I, this sounds like this could be something workable. Um, I, I I do I, I'm I'm in favor of you know all the things we've suggested so far. I think I just would need to play test it to see what is what makes the most sense and what is the you know most balanced way to go about it. Um, I like the idea that maybe it is sort of thing where you know you can increase what spell slot you're using at the cost of. Uh, you know, an additional level of exhaustion. Um, But I do also like the idea that it has its limitations and maybe you shouldn't be able to cast these, you know, a six level spell because you're completely out. Maybe it is just for first level spells. I'm not sure. I'd have to, I'd have to try it out.
2: Yeah. Test and see.
0: Um, Do you guys have any, any final homebrew rules to, uh, to discuss?
2: No, thank goodness. I don't have that many that, You know, we've we've talked here for a little bit now, but thank goodness that we've got uh, not too many that we alter our game with. But I think my final thoughts on homebrew rules is that we're trying to play a game to have fun. Uh, You know, in a couple weeks, we're going to be talking about the the beefs that we have with 5e. And I think that, um, you know, taking knowing the rules of 5e and bending them a little bit to make them more curated to our style of fun and our type of game that we want to play. I think that is just acceptable. If you play with homebrew Rules, great. If you don't, great. At the end of the day, we're here to have fun.
0: I agree. I agree. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Homebrew Rules are meant to create the game that we want to play so that we can all have a good time at the table. So I guess with that that about does it for our show thank you guys for stopping by and if you like this episode please check out our future episodes which we release every Wednesday at 12pm central next week we're actually taking next week off we'll be returning in two weeks but we will be discussing some of our beefs with 5e as a gaming system this has been Discussions and Dragons I'm Jaron, and I'm Britton and thank you Elaine for stopping by and being a guest on our
1: podcast as well Thank you for having me. I actually really appreciate it. Uh, Well, it was a lot of fun talking shop. Excellent. Well, we will see you guys next time.